Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in our series, First Peter, Hope in the Midst of Suffering. In this series, we will discover how to experience hope within suffering through learning how to embrace love, submission, and identity in the midst of challenges as we follow the example of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing. Um, today's scripture reading is 1 Peter 5, verse 1-4. to To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those, over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the, the crown of glory that will never fade away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Brent. How are you doing, friends? Awesome. Who's actually going to watch the game later? I knew we were a sporting church, just like that, just like that. Um, Brent said before we have the facilities, when um, I have like friends who are pastors in the region who come and say visit, they walk into the church like, it must be amazing to be in this building. And I'm so quick to say that uh, where they have a facility, sort of four walls with all the needs met that they can sort of possibly imagine. We've got a cathedral and uh, so on a scale of one to facility, this place sometimes just feels less like a facility and more like a beautiful cathedral that's really hot in summer. Uh, But anyway, I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into the scriptures together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, we're really good at looking at our own selves when we think about progress in the Christian life. But thank you for that necessary reminder that it's actually about what you've paid for for us. It's what you've done on our behalf. Even instead of us, Lord, you took on flesh, died the death we deserved, lived the life we couldn't live, were buried, was raised, or so we might have union with you, Heavenly Father. And so we just say thank you. Whatever we learn from your scripture right now is just an awesome bonus. So help us hear what you might be saying to us in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, if you're wondering, does he cry at the start of every sermon? Yes. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, What comes to your mind when you hear the word pastor? Now, the dad, the future dad in me, I wish one day, thinks not just the sort of the glutinous, delicious, cream, cheese-covered thing we, the Italian sort of birth for us, what comes to your mind when you hear the word pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R? And I think we're in a cultural moment where that word is highly contested, highly contested. When I was a teenager, I knew when I first met Jesus Christ that I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to work in the church. I wanted to help those that I didn't yet know discover the God that I'd only just come to meet face to face for myself. I wanted to be a pastor. And when I told this to my parents, I remember them uh, sort of thinking two things. They were, they were morally 
excited for me, but they were financially concerned. <laughs> they were proud of me because in their generation, what was typical, say 20, 30, 40 years ago, is that the church as an institution in society had the moral high ground. So when people thought of the church, they thought that's the place that I can go or send my kids to to train them in the way that they should live their life. This happens with Christian schools across our nation. You've got parents that themselves might not be Christians, but they think, if I want to train my child to grow up in, the th in sort of a right moral character formation, I'll send them to a Christian school, maybe even send them to Sunday school. And my parents had the same experience. They thought they were morally proud, financially concerned. I remember them thinking, if you're a priest, will you be able to afford things? It was a genuine concern on their heart. Because in their generation, what was typical and what came to their mind is that they thought Christians were morally rich and financially poor. But in the last 10, 15 years, that's completely flipped in our cultural moment. In 2021, there's a podcast that came out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Anyone listen to that podcast? A couple of us here. And in that podcast, it traced the journey and the pastoral ministry and leadership of a guy named Mark Driscoll. Now, I grew up listening to Mark Driscoll. He was the guy who unpacked the Bible for me in a way I'd never seen before. But the stories and testimonies that came through from his ministry leadership team, his staff team, and people that knew him closely was that he skirted really close on the boundary between having authority and abusing that authority. And now these are testimonies from people. What ended up getting pushed through in this podcast is the story of a man who, I think Mars Hill, which is the story that this sort of podcast covers, it's the story of a man who used their website as the first platform to, um, to hold MP3 sermons, you know, to broadcast out to the world. Mark uh, started this church in the late 90s and it grew and sort of flourished and planted all these churches and then came crashing to a halt in 2014. And the question people started to ask about his leadership was, is it, is it healthy, like our sound system? Is it safe? And the Christian community around the world added a whole host of categories of questions to what they expect of a pastor or a leader in a church. Or in 2011 or 13, I think it was, the then minister, Julia Gillard, commissioned the Royal Commission into institutional response into sexual abuse. And the findings came out in 2017. Now, trigger warning here, what that discovered was that the way that institutions responded to claims of sexual abuse in our nation were harrowing, horrific, terrible. And third down the list were religious institutions, churches. And so you've got a cultural moment within which the default mode of the human heart is this, I don't trust someone in leadership, and I especially don't trust religiously institutional leadership. What comes to your mind when you think of the word pastor? Now, in response to this, this pendulum swing over this side, what's happening now is something that's been noted by a whole host of church thinkers and writers and commentators, and we've got sort of a moment of cultural pastoral burnout. And there's stories of pastors and leaders leaving the church in droves, and COVID had something to do with it, but also, too, this cultural moment has something to do with it. I was listening to a podcast this week by a guy, he's named Leonce Crump. And he's a reformed pastor in the American South. And he talks about how there was this moment where his staff came to him. And in response to all these questions people are asking about leaders, he now felt timid. And he wasn't leading his team. And the staff came to him and said, Leonce, we need you to lead us. You've stopped leading us. What was he doing? He was taking the fear that had bubbled up because of our cultural moment. And he was now unable to fulfill the call that God had on his life. And here's what he said in this podcast. 
He said, we live in a day and age when direction is seen as control, clarity is seen as manipulation, expectations are seen as burdens, and accountability is seen as abuse. What comes to your mind when you hear the word pastor? What's a church leader meant to be? How can someone who feels a sense of call to shepherd the flock of God, as this text would give injunction toward, how can they outwork that calling without stepping on toes while at the same time feeling this God-given sense of responsibility over a particular kind of people? What's a pastor anyway? The text we've read tonight gives us a sort of swimming lanes within which to understand what that word is. And it's going to humble us. It's going to liberate us. It's going to empower us all together, whatever place we find ourselves in as we try and understand this thing called the church. And I feel a bit of vulnerability stepping into this passage because it's, it's pretty obvious. I am pastor of New Life Brisbane. And as I unpack this text, I give you a sense of my own sense of call and vision. Like if you want to know what makes my heart tick, this is the passage, but unpacking it before each of us is like really vulnerable. Because you get to ask this question, oh, does Alex do that? Does he do it well? Has he not done parts of that that's really hurt me? And so I share this with us tonight, not because I've got this deep-seated sense that I've nailed what this passage gives injunction toward. I give it because I think we're in one of the most interesting leadership crises the Western church has ever faced. People in general distrust leaders. People within the church especially distrust pastors at the moment. And what began as my parents thinking that I would be morally rich and financially poor, the Western world looks at the church and thinks it's full of a bunch of leaders that are morally poor and unfortunately financially rich. So let's jump into the text. I want to talk about two things, shepherds and sheep. And there's going to be two footnotes on either side of those points. And here's the footnote number one, verse one. If you've got your Bibles, get them out. Let's call this a bit of theological housekeeping. Does that sound okay? Awesome. Housekeeping number one, verse one, chapter five, says this, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Here's my question as we open up this passage. What's in Peter's mind in terms of the governance and the structure and the leadership as he's writing this letter? How should the church organize itself? Who should be at the top? Who should be at the bottom? Should there be a top? Should there be a bottom? If you know anything about the Uniting Church, we're very passionate about these questions, actually. And how should the church organize itself? What's the structure in the mind of the Apostle Peter as he's writing this text? Now, here's three ter Greek terms that unpack the way in which the New Testament writers talk about the governance structure of the early church. Three terms, and I won't make you say this to your neighbor. You're welcome for that. But we'll unpack it here. There's three terms, presbyteros, episkopos, and poimenos. Now, these terms are used quite interchangeably in the New Testament, and they're often translated in somewhat interchangeable ways. But the big takeaway would be simply this. Presbyteros usually referred to the Jewish elder and the Jewish community, something typical of the Old Testament. And the idea is that that would be age-based. So in the Old Testament, you've got elders in the Jewish community that would find themselves, because of the years that they lived and the gray hairs that represent the wisdom that they've got, they should be respected by the young in their 
midst. That's the image, presbyteros, and that was a Greek term that the, the Jews would use and now finds its way into our New Testament. In the New Testament, however, presbyteros simply just gets translated elder and is more relevant, say, towards moral or uh, wise characteristics than it is age, if that makes sense. So you call someone an elder not because they've got gray hair necessarily in the New Testament church, but because they are worthy of honor because of their character and own apprenticeship after Jesus. Then you've got a second term, which is episkopos, which you might hear within that word episcopalian, um, which actually that might just be me, so apologies for that. But, and this word can also be translated elder. And you sit there going, well, why are they using different Greek terms? And the answer is because simply what would happen in the early New Testament church is all these churches would get planted, and what would spring up within their midst is elders, perhaps as a hangover from the Jewish system that preceded it, or as something intentionally done by new Christians. And then at the same time, and Paul uses this word interchangeably in some of his letters, and this housekeeping will be over soon, I promise. And he uses this word to describe sort of an extra leadership level within their midst. Um, and so it could be translated as elder or overseer. And the last one is poimenos, um, which is simply like more of a characteristic about what should mark the kinds of leaders there. Now, why do I go into all this? I go into all this because two reasons. One, every church and the history of church sort of debate on how we should set up the church is an interpretation of how these words are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Every church structure, every church expression, every definition of leadership, whether more pragmatic or more ideologically driven or whatever, is an interpretation of these terms. And here's what we've got in this passage. It combines all three of them really helpfully and unhelpfully all at the same time. It says, to the elders, presbyteros among you, be shepherds, poimenos of the flock of God, watching over episkopos. And you're like, so how do we set up the church? Here's the takeaway point. Every denomination is an interpretation of how to establish spiritual oversight with a pastoral bent. What's been debated in church history is the nature of that pastoral oversight. What's not been debated is the fact of it. Do you see this? What's been debated in church history is this question, how do we set up pastoral oversight? What's not been debated is the fact of it. Now, I wasn't gonna go into this, but here's what I think this means. I think this means that there's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. No such thing as someone who says, look, I don't go to church anymore. I've got no local church of which I'm a part. I know the podcasts I like. I know the scholars I like reading. I know the cultural commentary that I go to. It is awesome. I'm being fed. We love that word. Fed. I'm being fed at the moment. It's really good for me. You should try it. But I'm not part of a local community with established pastoral oversight, with people by whom I'm known, themselves who I know, by whom I'm loved, themselves who I love, over a table of dinner I share life. There's no such thing as that in the biblical imagination. The Bible doesn't have category for a lone wolf Christian. It just doesn't. Which means in the face of the crisis we're facing in the church right now of leadership questions, of concern and distrust, what's the response we can't have? The response that we can't have is just to say, I'm done with the church. Now, that's hard. Because as a pastor, I'm like, I'm pretty done with the church sometimes myself. Like, we are a ragtag bunch of people. We get on each other's nerves sometimes. Sometimes we're just plain, downright annoying to each other. Yet the Bible would stand there and say, actually, what's not been debated is just the fact that 
God has established local churches and called men and women equally into the office of overseeing, giving pastoral oversight, championing, encouraging, pushing back, rebuking, all for the sake of what? And we'll get to the what toward the back end of this sermon, but this is the takeaway point. The nature of that's been debated. The fact of it definitely has not. God calls men, women to be pastors, elders, overseers, shepherds of the flock of God. That's the housekeeping. But... Let's get to point two. Though we have an ultimate shepherd, the Bible also instructs us to have human shepherds. So this is verse two. And I just want to zoom in on that phrase, watch over them. Watch over them. Uh, In the ancient Near East, sheep were very valuable. Sheep were the things from which you could get milk, clothing, meat. They were also currency. You would trade sheep. You'd trade, this happens in the Old Testament, Jacob and Laban trade sheep. It becomes a currency, a way by which to get rich and, and purchase things. Shepherds, therefore, would guard them day and night. In a world without banks, or at least not the banks that we know, and a currency which is like a gold coin or a credit card, but actually, what, what do they have? Well, the answer is they've got sheep in pens, or not pens, but on the mountainside, overseen by shepherds. The role of a shepherd was sort of banker. It was like food cultivator. It was garment manufacturer. Shepherds had an incredible task because what they watched over was incredibly valuable, and it was valuable because it was incredibly fundamental to life, sustenance, and flourishing in the ancient Near East. Sheep were pretty important, so shepherds would watch over them. They'd watch over them and guard them day and night. They'd feed and water them week after week, and they'd guide them across the mountainside month after month. And why is that important? It's important because a good shepherd was a good thing to their flock. And the task of the shepherd, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Oh, I've completely, I've completely jumped over a different point. I'll come back to that second point. The task of a good shepherd, we're talking about shepherds here, not sheep. How's, how, how helpful is that? The task of a good shepherd was to watch over their, over their sheep. Now, there's a writer in the 20th century, John Stott was his name, incredible writer, pastor, and he said the task of a shepherd's four things, four things to feed, to guide, to guard, and to heal. A good shepherd in the ancient Near East would feed their sheep. Why? Because sheep couldn't feed themselves. To guide their sheep. Why? Because sheep couldn't lead themselves. To guard their sheep, why? Because sheep couldn't guard themselves. And to heal their sheep, why? Because sheep couldn't heal themselves. So what do we have today? When you think of the pastor in the church, when I asked that question earlier, what what comes to your mind when you hear the word pastor? I think we've got a few expressions of what the pastor is today, and you'll see some words up on the screen that I think have done travesty to what the calling of a pastor is in the church. The first kind of pastor I think that's prevalent today is what you might call the CEO pastor. Now, as I use these words, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's unhelpful to bring business principles into the church to better organize how we do stuff. I actually think that would really benefit a lot of churches, especially my life. I can be quite disorganized. What I'm not saying is that to think through principles that might mark the manufacturing business or the advertising arrangement or whatever is unhelpful in of itself. But as an end in itself, it's a surefire way to dilute the vision God's got for his leaders in the church. And so I think we've got CEO pastors. Now, in the late 20th century, there's a movement called the church growth movement. 
And the church growth movement published books, podcasts, talks, sermons, and it arranged all these ideas from the business world, pulled them into the church, and said, if we just want to get bums on seats, if we want to increase the amount of people in our midst, then all we need to do is adopt these particular principles, and we'll actually grow our church. Now, here's what's helpful about that. It's really helpful to increase the way by which we do administration, organization, thinking clearly about what we might call the, the organization of the church, the the institution of the church. But if that's an end in itself, here's what it does. It, in, in being a CEO, it, it keeps the denomination happy because all of a sudden we're growing and that makes the denomination really excited. And also too, it can create contributors out of people instead of, say, disciples who understand just how present God is in their life if they didn't lift a finger. The church growth movement added some really helpful things to the church. But it by itself, as the organizing principle for a pastor and for a congregation, it can actually make us more of an army than a flock of sheep. And there's something unhelpful about that, even though there's helpful things too. The other kind of pastor that's possible to become, and I I feel this, is a shopkeeper. The person whose primary goal in life is to make people happy. Now, this is really hard for me because this is literally my personality type. I don't love conflict. I don't want to get in the way. I don't love hard conversations. And so I find it really easy to drift into this mode where I just say, I just got to keep them happy, keep them okay, make sure no one's offended. And what the shopkeeper does is their organizing principle for church is how can I make the the people happy and how can I create extra people within my midst? Eugene Peterson rallies against this. He's a writer. He wrote the message um, version of the Bible and... He puts it like this. This, These are scathing words. He says, The pastors of the West have metamorphosed into a company of shopkeepers and the shops they keep are churches. They're preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep the customers happy, how to lure customers away from competitors down the street, how to package the goods so that the customers will lay out more money. Some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract a lot of customers, pull in great sums of money, develop splendid reputations, yet it is still shopkeeping all the same. The marketing strategies of the fast food franchise occupy the waking minds of these entrepreneurs while asleep they dream of the kind of success that will get the attention of journalists. What's he saying? He's saying it's really easy if you're a leader in a church, as a pastor in a church, to start using principles from the shopkeeping world, pull them into the church, and if that's an end in itself, you create consumers, not disciples, and you find yourself as someone who's just trying to keep people happy along the way, which means what Lance Crump said at the start, is entirely possible to happen. Keep people happy, but don't point out sin. Come alongside people in comfort, 100% the way of Jesus, but not in critique. And all of a sudden, we've all got our own images of Jesus and none of us are taking progress in the way after him. The last kind of thing is the celebrity pastor, and this one really grinds my gears. The celebrity pastor, in, I think it was 2021, there's a lady named Caitlin Beatty, and she wrote a book called Celebrity, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. Celebrity pastors, they don't make the congregation happy necessarily. They do as a byproduct. Their primary goal is to make themselves happy. Take the spotlight. Be the center of attention. Be the thing around which everyone orbits their lives. All decisions come through the celebrity pastor. And their job, therefore, is to create fans, not followers of Jesus, fans. And this passage comes as a critique and an encouragement to all of those things because, sure, pastors are meant to be leaders, but they're not meant to be the center of attention. 
feels really weird saying that right now as I preach. Just going to be honest about that. Pastors are meant to borrow from the best wisdom of the world because we think that all truth is God's truth, therefore all wisdom is God's wisdom. And if it worked over there in that organization, maybe it could work here too. But our job definitely is not to create just a big room of people that'll listen to a talk and not change their Monday. And the job of a pastor isn't just to create consumers sort of shopping at the merry-go-round of church because here's what happens if that is our primary goal. It just means that we go to this church because it's nice and that gets old after a while. Then we go to that church because it's nice, and that gets old after a while. And we find ourselves consuming institutional expressions of church rather than turning our attention toward the head of the church, Jesus Christ. What's the point? We need shepherds. I need a shepherd. We need shepherds who whose goal is not to keep people happy, but to contend for people's holiness. One of the early writers in the church, Augustine, an African bishop, he put it like this, talking about pastors. Get this image in your mind about pastors. He said, there are disturbers that need to be rebuked in our congregations, low-spirited to be encouraged, the infirm to be supported, objectors confuted, the treacherous guarded against, the unskilled taught, the lazy aroused, the contentious restrained, the haughty repressed, litigants pacified, the poor relieved, the oppressed liberated, the good approved, the evil born with, and all are to be loved. Is that what image comes to your mind when you think of a pastor? We don't need CEOs who can grow the church numerically by appealing to the latest sexy programs that are on display in another church. We need leaders who go after the lost sheep. We need pastors who care for the sheep God's given to them to entrust after. We don't need celebrities who create fans. We need examples who help us see the way of Jesus. My favorite triangle, no talk of mine will be without some kind of image on the screen. My favorite triangle to summarize In short, what I think the church of Jesus Christ needs is behind me. If I ask someone, you know, what do you think I do? People will say, oh, you probably lead a few things, run a few programs. You probably teach a bit. I like your sermons every now and again. And surely you have to do a bit of administration. Administration. If I ask people what they really think I do, if you go to the next slide, they're like, you just have a bunch of coffees, don't you? I'm like, I wish, that sounds awesome. Love coffee. But Eugene Peterson in his book, Working the Angles, he takes aim with this like gun of rhetoric at the church growth movement. And Eugene's down one end of the spectrum, so just forgive him for that. But like, he takes aim and he points out all the unhelpful things. And he, and he says, when people think of what a pastor is, they usually think preaching, leading, administration. And he says, actually, that's somewhat like what people think of when they think of a triangle. They think of the things that are visible, the things that everyone can see that are really, really obvious. And so in the same way you think about a triangle, line one, line two, line three, so too when you think of a pastor, and just bear with me here, friends, when you think of a pastor, you think preaching, leading, administration. That's what they do. But then he says, what gives a a triangle integrity is not just the lines, but the angles that govern where the lines are set. 
And he said, likewise, what gives pastoral ministry integrity, whether you're more of a CEO type and a charismatic leader, or you're more reserved kind and more of sort of a behind the scenes shepherd, what gives any of that integrity, the stuff that you do, is the angles that govern where the lines are set. Now, the reason I'm zooming in here is because I truly believe that there's people in this place that feel called to pastoral ministry. Here are your marching orders. Prayer, scripture reading, spiritual direction. Prayer, scripture reading, spiritual direction. You might feel called to ministry here this afternoon and you say, I couldn't preach to save my life, but I can do admin. Awesome. You might feel called to pastoral ministry here this afternoon and you say, I can preach the roof off a house, but man, I really suck at admin. Two things I'd say to you, awesome, join the club. And I would say none of that really matters if you don't get this right. Prayer, scripture reading, spiritual direction. Prayer, attentive to God for his own sake. Scripture reading, attentive to God for my sake, as I know him, become known by him, have formed into his image and have my own sense of marching orders about the life that I should live. Scripture, so spiritual discernment, spiritual direction, attentive to God for the sake of the other. I love what Peterson says. He says, the task of a pastor is not to get stuff did. It's to point out what God's doing and help a community of people see along the way that he's in our midst doing more than we could ask, think, or imagine. We just need to change the lens with which we look at the world. He's right here. He's doing something. Now, why do I say all this? Why listen to this? As I zoom in on this and sort of give injunction for those who feel called to pastoral ministry in the room, why, why listen to this if you don't feel called that way? Three things. One, what an awesome opportunity for us as a community to champion those who feel called to this kind of ministry. We should pray for those in our midst who want to be shepherds and pastors of God's flock. Two, though, I remember years ago being in the UK, and people always laugh when I say that because I probably say it too much. But Tim Keller, pastor of New York, he's the late Tim Keller, he's passed away now, but he came over and he was speaking to a bunch of Christians in Parliament. And Westminster Chapel sits right underneath the chambers of Parliament within which all the MPs gather. And as a bunch of Christians, they walk into the room together and Tim Keller opens up Matthew chapter five, or chapter six, and he reads Jesus' words. He says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And he's speaking to Christians. But on the rows, on the pews on the outside, there's a bunch of non-Christians present. And as he starts to speak, he starts to unpack how this injunction from Jesus is actually one of the most powerful visions for what the end result of an MP should be. Why? Because what Jesus meant when he said, you're salt of the earth, light of the world, is you're preventers of decay. That's what salt did in the ancient context. And you're the preservers of the good. And if Christians could get Jesus's vision to be preventers of decay and preservers of the good in politics, could you imagine how awesome the world would be? Beautiful. But there's non-Christian MPs standing right there. Here's what Keller said to them. He said, I cast this vision unashamedly because it would benefit your society to keep us accountable. I cast this vision unashamedly because it would benefit you to keep us accountable. You might be sitting here and you're like, I am never gonna work in the church. Man, it would benefit you to keep us accountable. I feel like a six out of 10 as a disciple sometimes. And when life's anxious for me, 
when life's hard, here's my default setting. I move into control mode. I get spreadsheets out, I get my calendar out, get my team in a room, let's get on the same page, everyone. What am I doing there? Here's the page I've created. Let's walk together. It's very comforting. It's good for my anxiety. Curate, control. It's a big risk. What if my default mode was actually to say, and I've been meditating on this a lot recently, John 15, verse 5. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. What kind of church would we be if our default mode was, I actually can't curate this. I can't put calendar items in for this. I can't put a plan together for this. I need the Holy Spirit. I need God. That's what our team needs. That's what our staff needs. That's what our leaders need. That's what all of us need. So I say this unashamedly just to say, hey, keep me accountable for this. Attentive to God for his own sake through the Bible. Attentive to God for my sake through prayer. Attentive to God for one another through spiritual direction. What a beautiful vision of pastoral ministry. What a wonderful thing to champion in my life and the life of those who call themselves pastor here at New Life Brisbane. I can't remember what the third thing was and I'm running out of time. So here's the last thing I'd say. We are sheep. Verse two. I've done this the other way around, by the way. It would have had such flow. if uh, It's like, remember the time I... Um, we were doing communion, and I think I did the wine before the bread. I'll say what I said then. It still works. All right. So, <laughs> verse two, be shepherds of the flock of God. And here's, here's Peter's organizing metaphor. We are sheep. Now, when I hear that, my first response is, why that metaphor, bro? Like the audacity. Are you kidding me? When was the last time you invited someone over to look at the tricks you've taught your, lo- your pet sheep? Didn't happen. Why? I don't think sheep are that clever. I was ch- catching up with a, um, uh, a friend, uh, he's a pastor in Toowoomba this week, and it just, I was telling him about this passage, and I'm preaching, and I was like, I'm looking up illustrations. They're all pretty negative, man. And uh, he's like, yeah, they are. He's like, actually, we just adopted a sheep. And I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to share this. So him and his wife, they just adopted a sheep. They've got a little daughter, and they've got a dog at home, and the, they've adopted this sheep because the sheep was abandoned by its mother at birth. And being abandoned by its mother at birth, it's now completely vulnerable. The place from which it gets food is its mum. And for the mother to abandon it now makes this a rodent, lost, left alone, outcast sheep. So it's completely vulnerable to the elements. So they take in this sheep. It's helpless. And they start feeding it and training it, not training it, hanging out with it, looking at it, posting YouTube, TikTok videos about how cute it is. And, and what this sheep's now started doing is it started acting like a dog because they've got a pet dog. And so it wags its tail a little bit, it runs after the ball, that kind of thing. And, but you've got this crazy image of this sheep and completely vulnerable, really quick to follow other things without much forethought. And my question is, Peter, are you kidding me, bro? There's actually a story in uh, 2021, uh, there's these TikTokers that um, filmed the finding in Australia of this lost sheep named Barrack. You'll see a picture of it on the screen behind me. And it was lost for like, I don't know, a couple of years. And they found it, and because sheep can't clean themselves, it's wandering around the Australian outback. Actually sounds like a bit of a millennial dream, doesn't it? It's wandering around the Australian outback, and they find it, and it's just covered in hair, and it's dirty, and it's smelly, and it's urine, and feces is all wrapped up in its mitts, and they shave it, and 35 kilos of wool fall off this thing. So Peter, why sheep? Are you kidding me? Like, why not army? 
Why not the 1992 Brisbane Broncos? Why not the Diamond Dogs? Why sheep? <laughs> Ted Lasso fans in the room. And I think because Peter's communicating a spiritual truth here, and it's this, that we are spiritually helpless without a shepherd. Like, we're spiritually helpless. We're so good at fooling ourselves as Christians that, oh, if I just plug in this spiritual discipline here, if I just put this church event in the calendar there, if I just try really hard, I, I'm going to make it as a Christian. I'm going to grow as a disciple of Jesus. And, and what Peter has as his organizing metaphor through which to think about the church is just so humbling. It's, it's that we're spiritually helpless. We're like sheep. Isaiah 53, 4 or 6, the Sunday school people in the room will know it. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. So good. Now, I find it really easy to be something that I call like a to-do list Christian. And I just think if I just put these 10 things in place and organize my life, then I'm going to be okay. When the world thinks about what it means to be a human, I'm sorry, what it means to be a Christian, a lot of people will think actually to be a Christian is just to be like a really good person, to fix your life up, take on the morals of Jesus, and grow in our ability to be like Jesus. That's true, that's one part of it, but I'd say that's a byproduct from something that happens that's way more foundational. The Christian story is that we are bankrupt before God. We can't bring him our complete to-do list. We can't bring him our buffed out resume. We can't bring him our expertise or excellencies or wisdom or trying or righteousness. It actually would say that actually all of it's just filthy rags before him and actually a means by which we distract ourselves from him all the time. Why? Because we're spiritually helpless. In the 20th century, the Times put out a question to England in the UK, asking this question, what's wrong with the world? And the world rallied their philosophies. Scholars wrote back and said, actually, what's wrong with the world is that we need more education. We're just not educated enough. Other people wrote back and actually said, no, it's, it's politics. We need the right people in government. Some people wrote back and said, actually, it's that we're technologically ill-advanced. We need progress in technology. There's a Catholic writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He wrote back, and he had the shortest response out of all of them. What's wrong with the world, the question asked. G.K. Chesterton. Dear sir, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What was he doing? He's saying there's a humbling and liberating truth at, the, truth at the heart of the Christian story, that we're more broken than we imagined, and we are the source of all the world's problems. We're more loved than we could ever imagine, and more dear to the God who made us. Why? Well, it's in the text. Peter says, be shepherds of God's flock. Why do I pull that out? I pull it out because the nature of what we are is humbling. but the nature of whose we are is liberating and exalting. Why? The story is this, that there was a shepherd in heaven who knew the comfort of a home, but he was sent out into the field by his heavenly father. He was a willing participant. And in going out to the field, he was looking for the lost sheep. The lost sheep that find it so easy to turn to their own way, do their own thing, reject the shepherd that loves them. 
and he chased after them in the person of Jesus. And he said, I want that none of my children would be lost. So at the heart of the Christian story is a good shepherd, not the shepherd on the stage, not the shepherd that you'll find on our website, the person that might lead this church. It's it's the good shepherd who left his home above, came down onto this earth to live the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve, took on the burden of responsibility to reconcile us back to the home for which we were made. That's the Christian story. Sheep and shepherds. My last point was gonna be this, but I've run out of time. Every good shepherd knows they're just a sheep too. And I'll just finish just by saying that. What a wonderful encounter for all of us to know whether we're in leadership or lay members in a church we call home. To know simply that actually what makes us distinct is not just some sense of calling, not expertise or wisdom or rhetoric or but actually that we're all pursuing the same Good Shepherd together. And that some of us have a wonderful responsibility in this community to exemplify as best they can what that could possibly look like. To call out as hard as it might be to suggest what it doesn't look like. But all of us together, sheep, growing into the image of our Good Shepherd for our joy, his glory, and the good of the world. Why don't you stand? As the band comes forward, there's also gonna be a prayer team that comes forward and they're wearing white lanyards. They'd love to pray with you, love to pray for you. And you can receive prayer for anything. We're just trying to normalize this as a community, right? We wanna see us respond vulnerably and honestly before our Heavenly Father. So if you've got any need in your life right now, why don't you come forward for prayer? But I wanna pray for those right now, just as the music begins behind me in some few moments, I wanna pray for those right now who feel called to pastoral ministry. So can I invite all of us just to close our eyes, just to posture our hearts, and just to prepare to respond. Emma prayed it so beautifully earlier. She said, God, you've got a word for each of us. I might not have spoken any of those. That's awesome. But if you find yourself here and you think, man, I actually feel called as a pastor. I think God wants me to play a part in shepherding his flock in this life. And can I just invite you just to raise your hand where you are? I'd love to pray for you. Awesome, thank you, wonderful. Thank you, awesome, wonderful. I see two, I'll leave it open just for another moment. Wonderful, great. Second, I'd love to just pray for those that when I ask the question at the start, what comes to your mind when you hear the word pastor? Something in you just sunk a bit because actually you've been let down by pastors. You've been let down by leaders. You've been hurt by the church. If that's you, I just want to invite you just to raise your hand where you are. In doing so, here's what I'm inviting you to consider. I want you to consider surrendering that to God. What began as justice in your heart runs the risk of turning into bitterness. And I want to invite you just to surrender that to God tonight. So if that's you, just raise your hand where you are. Wonderful, thank you. Awesome, thank you. Beautiful, thank you. 
Let me pray. Father, I want to repent. Jesus, only you are the good shepherd. And because you're the good shepherd, Lord, sometimes I feel inspired to be a better shepherd. And because you're the good shepherd, Lord, sometimes I feel free to be the broken shepherd that I am. I pray for each person here who feels a sense of call to pastoral ministry. Fill them with your spirit, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you invite people into your destiny for them, not our own. You call people to yourself and with yourself through them, shape your people, your church. And so, Father, I pray, come, Holy Spirit, pour out on those who feel a deep sense of call to ministry and just begin even now just to give them images of what that could look like in their life. Give them a deep sense that even if they don't feel like they're able or have the gifts or the wherewithal that you, Jesus, you will build your church and you want to use them on the way. And so, Father, pour out on them. And Father, I just pray for all of us in the room who are just carrying around baggage, luggage, burdensome, painful luggage because of the pain that we've experienced. Father, would you put your finger on what that is? I can't. We can't. Only you can show us. And as you, Jesus, the great physician, bring your scalpel to bear upon our hearts, we thank you that even though it stings, it brings healing and a whole new level from which to live life. And so, Lord, I pray for health for us as a church. I pray for life for us as a church. I pray for flourishing for us as a church, Jesus. Help us not look to human people or institutions as that from which the bread of heaven we need comes. Lord, help us look to you, Jesus. And Father, we're about to sing about how our soul pants for you. Oh, Lord, would you make it so? Father, stir up in us right now, not just a nonchalance as we come to the next part of the service, but a deep desire to respond, to pour out our praise to you, to send up a fragrant offering to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, pour out in our midst. Would you give us visions and help us see images? Would you encourage one another in our midst with scriptures and words from you, Lord? We need you. We we don't want to play church or do religion. We actually want to sit at your feet, worship you, and give you glory and honor and praise. And so, Father, as we sing, our soul pants for you, Lord. Would you make it so in our hearts by your spirit, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or our Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.